Before we read today's passage and begin the sermon, uh, we're going to do what sometimes pastors do and call an audible. Uh, This passage was, on the face of it, you might think this is just this, this weird story to include in, you know, but... But it's included in all three of the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all think that what transpires in these verses is so important that they all give up space to include it. Why? And as I was thinking about this song, or or, or as this, there you go, the song. We're going to sing a song. As I was thinking about this passage, the song that came into my mind is Amazing Grace. So we don't need any instruments. The human voice is the most beautiful instrument. And if you would please kill my mic for just a few moments, because some instruments are more beautiful. I'm sorry for disrupting your prayer, brother. Just this morning, I looked in the mirror. I was like, man, I'm so much uglier than I used to be. And then, and then you said that. I was like, oh, uh, testify. So, so. Anyway, we don't need to amplify this human instrument. So if you would turn it off, and I want to ask that you join me in an a cappella rendition of the, just the first verse of Amazing Grace. So tell me when it's killed. Is it killed? Yeah. All right, let's get it. start. Amazing Grace, how sweet the with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 20 as we conclude this chapter with the, with the telling of the healing of two blind men in verses 29 through 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, for the tender mercy of our Lord. We thank you for opening the eyes of the blind. And we ask that 
if there are any blind here, that you would open their eyes too. Grant that like these two, we would get up and follow you. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as I said a few moments ago, on the face of it, you would think this is just another healing miracle uh, in, the, in the Gospels. What's so special about it that it's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And, and to make it even more interesting, um, this is one of those passages where if you're a, a, a critical scholar, you'll point to it and say, or a skeptic, you'll say, aha, see, contradictions in the Bible. Uh, and the reason they will say this is here, Matthew says there were two blind men. Mark and Luke mention one blind man, and, and Mark says his name, Bartimaeus. Not only does he say his name, he says the father's name. And so that causes some people consternation. Matthew, Mark and Luke report one guy, Bartimaeus, and Matthew reports two guys. See, irreconcilable differences. Not The key here or the clue here is the fact that Mark names him. You see, if you look at the Gospels, read them all, you'll see that very few of the people with whom Jesus interacts are ever named. So whenever someone is named, it's an indicator that this is a person who was a somebody or a known person to the contemporaries of the day. That's, that's why they're named. So in other words, when, when someone like Bartimaeus is named, it's because he's a somebody to the first century crowd to whom Mark was writing. And the other guy is not. And well, why not mention the two? Well, oftentimes, whenever there's someone of singular prominence involved in an incident or in an episode of history, uh, we'll oftentimes just speak of it as if it was the work of that person alone, even though there were many other people involved. Uh, we do that. And coincidentally, I have an illustration of this happening just on Friday. Uh, Friday was a busy day, and in, in the early afternoon, I was down at Christ Presbyterian Church uh, on the uh, Candidates and Credentials Committee. And out of all the questions that could be asked in the church history section, uh, a question that was asked was, when was Christianity legalized in the Roman Empire? And if you know your history, what year was that? 313. Okay? And in 313, the, the thing that made Christianity legal is called the Edict of Milan. Right? Okay. So I'm... And when you study, y'all are like, I see you just love your history here. <laughs> the Edict of Milan in 313 AD legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. Okay. Who issued the decree or the, the Edict of Milan? Constantine, right? And that's how we remember it. If you look it up 
If you look it up, you will most likely read in short form, it was a decree by Emperor Constantine. But that's not technically what it was. It was not a decree by Emperor Constantine at all. It was an agreement between Constantine, who was emperor in the West, and a subordinate emperor in the East, Licinius. They came together to issue this document to put pressure on the bigger emperor of the East. But, but, but regardless, it was Constantine and Licinius were the two guys who actually wrote it. But most of you have heard of Constantine. Who here has heard of Licinius? Yeah, didn't think so. So we speak of the Edict of Milan in terms of Constantine. But there's another guy there too. In the same way, Bartimaeus was the somebody who was remembered by the early church. And so he's the one who's singled out in Luke and Mark. But Matthew, as a point of fact, wants to point out that there were actually two people there. Right? Okay. So what, what is this passage showing us? Well, there's, there's a lot of of irony in this passage. I love these, these miracle st stories. They're not story in the sense of fiction, but these, these episodes of healing where oftentimes you have the disciples who have been with Jesus being formally taught at the feet of Jesus himself for three years, and so often they just fail to get it, and consistently the people who get it are either outsiders like the Syrophoenician woman or, or, or consummate nobodies like these two blind men. And, and you see in that that the, the correct apprehension of Christ by the most, the most astonishing and unassuming of people is itself a subversion of what we expect to be the case where the people with all of the privilege and position should have the most insight and that's part of what Jesus has been teaching us about the kingdom, about the nature of it and greatness in it, what authority looks like in it, what the nature of rewards is like. This whole section has been about how the kingdom does not operate on the same principles as the worldly kingdoms around us. And this passage is especially teaching us something about Jesus. It's, it's showing us something about Jesus. Jesus has just said in, in the verses before about how in, in the face of the disciples James and John vying for the positions of prominence and honor and prestige and how Jesus sort of subtly rebukes them by, by pointing out that those who would be great must become servants. And that even Jesus himself, the son of man, the, the king of the kingdom, did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then this episode. So you should see these verses as a picture of this. This passage takes place as they are approaching their final destination. To borrow the 
motto from the 101st Airborne Division, Jesus has a rendezvous with destiny. And he is laser focused on getting to Jerusalem. But in this episode here, we see that all the, the common pitfalls that plague people when they are really intently focused on something or when they are facing imminent demise. Jesus doesn't have it. When you're focused on something intently, how do you take someone who's trying to burst in on your, on your, on your thought train? You love it, don't you? No, you get irritable and agitated. And commonly, when, when, when someone has, uh, when, when someone gets to a certain point in their life, when their lives are, are characterized by hardship and, 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 and ailments, those things tend to collapse their world, so all they want to talk about are their ailments. You see this in Christmas vacation. They kind of make a joke about it. When the family shows up and all they want to talk about, the one guy, they took a pint of fluid out of my back. I got this spot that's turning red. Uh, you know, I got the hemorrhoids. I've got, you know, that's all they want to talk about, their ailments. When, when, when people go through a heart, their world collapses and they, and they stop really caring about Others. And here we see Jesus. He's laser focused on Jerusalem. He's, he's very explicitly said what is about to befall him. And yet, he still takes the time to show compassion on the most unworthy. That's glorious. And he's showcasing here what true spiritual authority and leadership looks like. Understand that coming right on the heels of, of the previous section where they talk, where Jesus talks about the nature of authority in the kingdom, Jesus showcases here that authority in the kingdom is never given for position and prestige. Authority in the kingdom is always given for service. To either personally serve or to marshal and rally the service of others. To serve. And this is important that you see. They are coming out of Jer Jericho, it says. And if you look at some of the other gospels, it'll say they were going into Jericho. Which is, which is it? Trick question. Because... First, Josephus told us, but then archaeology confirmed for us that there were, in fact, two Jerichos. There was the, the town that Joshua had destroyed in the Old Testament. But then, during Herod the Great's reign, he did what every government does when they are faced with a, with a recession and chronic unemployment. He started building projects. FDR did it, right? 
So he started building projects, and he built cities all over the place, and he built, if he, if he had been British, he would have called it New Jericho. But he didn't call it New Jericho. He just called it Jericho, and it's less than a mile down the road from Old Jericho, and that was where he and his sons wintered. It was a, it was a real thriving place. So was he leaving Jericho or going to Jericho? I guess it depends on your perspective. But either one, because they're less than a mile apart. But Jericho, he is less than 17 miles away from Jerusalem. It's in Jericho that he's going to talk to Zacchaeus, the wee little man. He's almost there. And this road is, is windy. It's very rugged. What's interesting to me is in, a, in just under 17 miles, they're going to climb 3,500 feet of elevation. That is... Uh, Equivalent to the amount of elevation you will gain if you, if you enter Kansas at Kansas City and drive across the state, all 410 miles across the state. You may think it's flat as a pancake, but it's not. You gain about 3,300 feet of elevation in all those hours. So that collapses into less than 17 miles in Israel. That's a lot of elevation. Jerusalem normally has a population of about a quarter million people, which is still a pretty good population, but because the Passover is approaching, pilgrims from around the world are converging. And so there's throngs of travelers along these roads as the population of Jerusalem swells, would swell to over three million. That's, that's a huge increase. A quarter million to three million. That's a lot of bodies. And so these pilgrims are making their way. And there's two blind men sitting out there doing what blind men do. They're begging. Now understand when it says blind, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are what I would call absolutely blind. Any number of visual impairments could have affected somebody's ability to, to see and function back in the ancient world, okay? The point is, in the old world, there was very little accommodation. There was no such thing as braille. There was no such thing as seeing eye dogs or walking canes. And you certainly did not have a world that was very sympathetic. It was a cruel, hard world. And they were cast aside. To make it worse, here's a uh, little, if you're ever going to play Bible trivia against the pastor, here's a, uh, a little tidbit. They didn't like blind people. That was a carryover from David. Hold on to your seat. Old pious King David was biased against blind people. He didn't like blind people. In fact, you see in 2 Samuel 5.8, that's your Bible trivia reference, that because of David's personal disdain for, for blind people, subsequent generations of Jews didn't let blind people anywhere near the temple. So Jews didn't really like blind people. So these blind people are sitting there. They're used to being harassed. They're used to being mocked maybe even attacked or robbed. But mostly they're used to just being ignored, aren't they? 
and then they hear the commotion because Jesus is a rock star celebrity status at this point. And he's converging on Jerusalem, and in his wake, he's got this whole throng of people from Galilee who are just coming, and they are excited to see what's going to happen. They are here for the show, man. This is going to be exciting, whatever it may be. And you see what they say. They cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I think probably the most important words in this section are verse 32, the first two words, and stopping. Our Lord stopped for two nobodies, two unclean, and he cared. So this passage showcases our Lord's mercy. That in the midst of incredible pressure, an incredible uh, busy schedule, he was not too important to mingle with these guys. But in addition to showing us the mercy of our Lord and how he showcases for us what true spiritual authority and care should be looking like and used for, this passage has famously been called the gospel and microcosm because you see in these two blind men the a very picture of discipleship. So what I want to share with you are, are four brief discipleship points from this passage, okay? Uh, discipleship point number one from this passage that we see in these two blind men is as soon as they heard that Jesus was passing by, they start crying out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Okay, discipleship point number one is turn to Jesus. Jesus is the one who can heal us, who can have mercy upon us. The, the word translated mercy here. Is, is the word sozo, save. It's, it's the broadest possible term for mercy to indicate for us that they're asking not just for an act of mercy to relieve a momentary bit of suffering, but rather they're asking for comprehensive mercy. Save us. Jesus is to be the object of our faith, the one to whom we turn. If you don't turn to Jesus, nowhere else will do. Discipleship point number two is that persistence is key. I find it fascinating and somewhat dismaying here that they're crying out to Jesus, and the crowd rebukes them. You read that in verse 31. The crowd rebukes them. And these guys, they don't care about all the peer pressure. They don't care about all the harassment. They put their fingers in their ears, so to speak, and they just start crying out even more. What, what, what's astonishing to me is that this is not the first time where people have come to Jesus and and. And the crowd or someone tries to keep people. People are always trying to keep others from Jesus. 
and Jesus will have none of it. The, the crowd here is, is astonishing because they're following Jesus. They're, they're excited to see what will happen. Sure, most of them are following for the wrong reasons, but they're still following him. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his words. They've seen his works. They've seen how he's healed the people countless times. So why wouldn't they want him to stop and heal in this moment? Well, again, things have reached ahead. This, these guys are not important. They're not on the radar. Be quiet, you. They are content to bask in the presence of Jesus but yet, despite all that basking, they have not yet begun to, to give evidence to any reflection of his character. That's sad. But despite the opposition, despite whatever pressure they were feeling internally to be quiet, to, to stop letting, saying things that were annoying those who were around them. They persisted. And friends, discipleship point two is persistence is key in the life of discipleship. You will face opposition. There will be people who want to keep you from Jesus. And you must persevere, persist. Don't let your friend's circle deter you. Don't even let your family deter you. Nothing should deter you with singular focus. Persist. Persist. That's what we see modeled here. And is that not consistent with what the Bible teaches elsewhere? But these guys model it for us. Discipleship principle number three. You must see Jesus as your all. He is the pearl of great price. It's astonishing that just a few, just a chapter before, he talked to the rich young ruler and it was, it was the stuff of this life, essentially, that kept him back, that held him Hostage, so to speak, so he couldn't follow Jesus. And what happens when Jesus heals these people? They stand up, throw off their cloak, and follow him. That's awesome. And they do it because they weren't born blind. Something had happened to make them blind. And in their blindness and despair, they, they, they had been subject to all sorts of things. But here's the one who cared enough to stop and to ask, what do you want me to do for you? The king of the cosmos asking a nobody, what do you want me to do for you? And, and so having received the grace of the king, and having tasted that the Lord is good, it was the natural course for them to simply follow. Because Jesus was more precious than whatever it was 
that was back there that they were leaving behind. So turn to Jesus. Persist and follow. That's, that's discipleship. And then there's one little more addendum. The mission. The mission. This passage shows us that even though Jesus had just said that he's going to Jerusalem and all this is going to happen, the Son of Man came to, to serve, not be served, and he's going to give his life as a ransom for us all. He, he, he's not too busy, too focused to stop and care. Because this man, these, these little nobodies, they were the mission. So even for us, guys, abstract theological concepts are not the mission. Bringing the grace, the mercy, and the love of a holy and righteous God to people is the mission. God forbid that we should ever get so discombobulated or or. or, 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 or or mixed up in our thinking that we think of the mission as actually an obstacle to the mission. Keep the main thing the main thing. So, this passage is beautiful. It showcases the gospel, how, how the call of discipleship, the life of discipleship is a turning to Christ in faith, persisting despite the various obstacles and following him, leaving behind everything that would otherwise have held you back. It showcases to us the tender mercy of our Lord and it reminds us of our mission. Guys, that is why this little episode is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. Jesus, we thank you for your tender care, for showing us your love for sinners, for those in need of your grace. We thank you for, by your spirit, inspiring Matthew, Mark, and Luke to include this episode so that we can see discipleship happen before our eyes and that we could be reminded of your great love and the clarity of our mission. Be with us. Help us to go and do likewise. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.